0: Welcome everybody. Um, we are having tonight Kimberly Alexander speak. She is with MAR Metro Atlanta Recovery Residence here in Atlanta. She's the Chief Clinical uh, Officer since April of 2020. She has an extensive history in behavioral health, substance abuse, and pharma- pharma- pharmacy. Psychopharmacolo- How do you say it, Kimberly? Psychopharmacology. There we go. <laughs> Before joining MAR, she served as a mobile assessment director, she was a clinical director at Riverwoods Behavioral Health and director of mobile assessments at Lakeview Behavioral Health. She got her MBA in marketing and business administration from Emory University, her MA in marriage and family therapy with specialization in addiction and sex therapy from Richmond Graduate University. She was a licensed professional counselor, certified professional counselor supervisor, published author, and professional speaker. She's also a personal trainer and group fitness instructor who endorses a holistic approach to wellness. She is committed to exceptional client care and dedicated to enhancing everybody that she comes into contact with. She also attended the West Point for two years. I think that's very interesting to know. And she had a son that graduated from the Naval Academy and he's a commissioned officer in the Navy. So Kimberly's topic is going to be managing stress and conflict. While loving your adolescent slash young adult. So I'm going to pray for Kimberly. Then walk you to the podium. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for Kimberly and the commitment she's made to serving you by helping those that struggle and have needs. God, we just pray that you will speak through her tonight and she'll leave us with words of hope, encouragement and nuggets of wisdom. Father, Uh, we pray that you'll be an empty vessel filled with your spirit, Lord. It's in Jesus name that I pray. Amen. Welcome, Kimberly.
1: Good evening. So um, I'm excited to be here this evening, very excited about the wonderful welcome. Um, I don't know what they're talking about with all the rock star stuff, but I do know that um, I'm authentic and what I'll share with you tonight is from my heart and I hope that you'll do the same. We'll go through these slides that really are talking about difficult things, but I think this is a safe place to do that and it's not safe because I say it is. It's safe um, when you feel that you can share, but sometimes sharing is what we all need. Sometimes you feel like when you're going through things, you're alone. No one else um, has been through those kinds of things, at least not to the extent that you have. And those who you love push away or cause more pain and you don't know what to do. So this is a great space for us to talk about hard things in a loving way. So the topic, as he said, is managing stress and conflict while you're still trying to love your your child. Um, and what is that hair club for men thing? I'm, Who'd you say? He's, I'm not only the owner; I'm a client. So I, I have a son who's not in recovery yet. So I'm very excited for what his future holds, but of course that's something that's very hard to watch. You know, so it's not as if I'm speaking just from a clinical perspective, which I will, or from a supportive uh, perspective, which I will. I'm also speaking from a person who has her own prodigal, and so I'm happy to share some of that with you as well. So I. I I do have an ADHD diagnosis. It's untreated. So I do move quite a bit. I have a Rubik's Cube in my hand. That's one of the ways I focus. So if that's distracting to you, my apologies. Um, But it also has a meaning. And so if we get time for that in the evening, I'll share that with you. So the the bulk of this talk is really going to be interesting because what's helpful is to know how do I handle this person? And this person, whether it's a son, a daughter, a nephew, a niece, someone that you're just attached to in your life, it could be someone you've kind of adopted as a God, you know, son or goddaughter, or um, even a, a spouse or a parent. There's so many people that this disease state attacks. It's interesting, we've seen over the last couple of years, you know, struggles in like race relationships in the United States, right? And so how do we come together? What thing, you know, do we all share? And isn't it sad that addiction figured that out? it didn't discriminate against anybody. Age, gender, you know, culture, nothing. Um, Socioeconomic status, you could have a lot of money, you could have none. And and I'm like, well, addiction can't be the only thing that permeated that. Love permeates that. Music permeated that. But addiction mastered it. And so um, even though the strategy that addiction uses is isolation, and divisiveness. When we come together, we do find, we can find solutions in that, but that doesn't make it easy. So thank you for counting all joy when trials and tribulations come, because they do. And they do make us stronger, but gosh, they sure wear us out too, right? So what's gonna be important is, what do you do with the stress that comes with it? Right, no one really talks to you about that. And frankly, do you know one of the number one reasons why people use substances is to manage stress? So a little interactive here. Is um is alcohol a an effective stress reliever? Yes or no? True or false? Alcohol is an effective <coughs> stress reliever. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Got one yes and a bunch of nodding heads, shaking heads. What is it? Is it? Oh yeah. Yeah? You'd say yes, couple of yeses. It absolutely is. It's effective in terms of does it manage the stress to a point where it reduces the stress level? Absolutely. Now, does it come with other burdens? And You know how people say you come with baggage? My middle child, uh, my kids go from 30 down to 14. My middle child, my introvert, she calls it a grief case. Mm -hmm. So instead of having baggage, you can call it a grief case. But, um, but it, comes, it brings more problems with it in every aspect, but it is affected, And sometimes it starts out innocently, right? Let's just go grab a glass of wine after work and wind down, right? They don't even call it wind down anymore. They call it wine down, mm-hmm. right? And so I was asked to speak at a, um, a church group. It was a women's church group in this affluent neighborhood and it rotated week to week the homes, beautiful homes, and so um, I was invited, one of my, it was a friend of mine, she's originally from Poland, she's got these amazing stories, um, when she lived in Poland, they never had Halloween at Poland, so when she moved here as a child and had Halloween, and, um, so she went around all the houses and got candy, and then the next day, on November 1st, she ran around all the, like, they just give you candy if you show up with a bag, she did that until November 3rd, and someone told her to stop, so she had invited me to, um, to her house, to speak at this women's um, um, kind of Bible study meeting, and everyone came with a dish, right? Some really great dishes, and everyone came with a mule, like not a burro, but you know what I mean—a mule—and everyone came with a bottle of wine. And when we got to the end of the evening, I forgot I was at a prayer uh, <laughs> Bible study. They were laughing and crying and hugging, and and I thought, huh. I'm going to go into a little bit of addiction talk at the end of this because literally they came to fellowship and they had just wine and cheese. And, but it becomes something that was a coping mechanism for them for all the challenges that they had earlier in the week. And that's how easy this can happen. So how do you manage the stress that comes with it? What you're going to find is a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight is you and not your prodigal. Because what's happened is the prodigal becomes the center of everything you do the center of your thoughts, you know, and you're more involved and engaged in what are they doing than even what you're trying to manage. And so when you do get a phone call, it panics you. When you don't get a phone call, it panics you, and it disrupts, you know, your balance. We do a talk um, in the Enabling, Rescuing, and Controlling, that's going to be on another slide uh, at Mar for families who support a loved one in addiction. And the example we give is, um, imagine if we didn't have these tables, and you've seen chairs set up in a group circle, right? So imagine we're setting this group up, it's a circle, but there's a chair in the center. right? The way a family system is supposed to work, and you can call family blood relatives, some people have family that are like best friends. I have a friend, she's my Frista, she calls me her Frista. We're more than friends, we're like sisters. So, you know, so imagine that's, that's who's in this outer circle. And then there's an empty chair in the middle. The chair in the middle is designed for people to rotate in and out of. So, if it's your wedding, you're in the chair. If you're battling some sort of sickness, you're in the chair. If you got promoted, you're in the chair. You, it's a graduation. So, everyone gets a chance to be in the chair. Does that make sense? And to be celebrated. But when addiction permeates your family, guess who's always in the chair? They are either needing to be bonded out or there's some sort of issue with work or some sort of issue um, financially or the car is wrecked or, you know, their phone's about to get cut off. And then the wedding has to happen over there. And then you're trying to decide, you know, because now your your spouse-to-be is saying, well, I don't know if I want to invite your dad. I don't know if I want to invite your brother. I don't want them to disrupt my day. And then you're thinking, now that's creating stress for you. How do I not invite my dad? It's going to walk me down the aisle. Or how do I not invite my brother, you know? Um, But those are the decisions that you're making. It's a graduation. Is he going to show up? Is she going to be drunk when she shows up? And so in that perspective, that's going to increase your stress level. How do you manage it? So a lot of what we're going to talk about is how you work on you, which is not usually what you're used to. You're used to working on them. Yeah. We have a family program at Mar and the family program is for the family member. So when the family comes in, they're always like, well, let me tell you all this collateral information, and this is how old you know, John was when he started drinking, and this is how, you know, um, how many times, you know, Sarah's been through treatment, and this, and we're like, "Well, We're gonna let the counselors in the program handle John and Sarah, how are you? We gotta work on your recovery. Oh, I don't have an issue. Oh no, you have an issue. Mm-hmm. There are symptoms of addiction that come along with you never using a substance at all. Now, granted, some people are also coping with substances, but literally the symptoms of addiction hit a family member. That same um, panic and anxiety and stress, it's a result of the addiction that you're dealing with in the family system. So first of all, I like to just define things. I'm a bit of an a egghead, blurred. So what is stress? So what does it mean to manage it, right? Because you know chronic diseases like diabetes, heart disease, we manage those, right? So stress is something that's managed. Now, I will share this with you. I don't really do stress. I cause it, apparently. Um, That was a joke. (laughs) Um, But I remember sitting in... um, I was a clinical director for an inpatient psychiatric hospital, and it was almost 10 o'clock at night, and I said, I'm getting off on time today, and that didn't happen. And I felt this... Um, I felt my shoulders kind of rising up to my ears, and I'm thinking, hold on a minute, I can drop and give me 25, why am I feeling this way? You know, and, and I'm talking to myself, and, 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 and people always talk to me about anxiety, stress, panic attacks. Well, I was experiencing it, and that's not something I experienced. I experienced a lot of things, but not that. So my shoulders were creeping up, and I was pushing them down. You know, just like when I'm like, doing bicep curls. You never really do your bicep curls like this, for those of you who work out. Somebody's supposed to hear that today. You pull your shoulders down. And so I kept doing that, I'm like, why are you rising up? And I'm talking to myself, and, I sa- and, I'm a- and I'm analytical, and so I said, how do you measure pressure? Does anyone know the instrument that's used to measure pressure? It's a barometer, yes, ding, 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 it's a barometer. And I said, well, if I had a barometer, and I was going to measure the pressure on my shoulders, what would it read? Nothing, it's not there, it's perceived. And I was talking to myself and next thing I know, and I said, you're not there, you're not real. And then my shoulders relaxed and I thought, wow, that's that stress that's kind of come into my body. I didn't ask for it. You know, that was a really weird way of managing it. Um, It didn't really last that long, you know. And then I remember um, later on, because addiction runs throughout my family, or at least I think it does. I wasn't raised with my parents. I met my mother later in life, and I sure ran over there. Um, and then my son, you know, on both sides of the family, I saw it. And so, you know, I had a thought to, to drink something. And I'm thinking, where'd that come from? You know, and it's really interesting because it'll, it'll be very subtle and innocent, and next thing you know, it can turn into something. So stress management, what we're talking about is all these wide techniques that we can use to manage it. Right? So you've heard of psychotherapy. We do a lot of that um, as counselors. Um, There's, you know, a lot of people are doing more Zen things, you know, meditation. Right? Um, For some people, just going to a yoga class, you know, would be a stress management technique. So we're talking about all of that. The point of it, when you're managing it, is that there's an implication that it's chronic. So chronic is the opposite of acute. Something that happens acutely, it just happens once or rarely. Chronic is something that's happening regularly. Well, guess what goes hand in hand with addiction or having a loved one with addiction? There is chronic stress on the relationship, on the finances, on just about everything, and it permeates. So managing it means we're gonna come up with these techniques and these strategies to help reduce it, right? So it's supposed to reduce the emotional effects of your everyday pressure. So the stuff that I was talking about that, you will respond to it physiologically, right? Has that happened to you? Manifest as maybe a headache that just will not go away. Maybe it'll disrupt your sleep. Yeah, right? Could impact appetite, like severely increase it. Or next thing you know, you haven't eaten all day. You know, and someone had to tell you that. Really? And, and who goes 15 hours without eating? someone who's permeated with stress. So, so this is managing that so that we can lessen these physical symptoms but also the emotional symptoms of these pressures. So I'm going to give you three ways that you can manage stress. One, just avoid it. So whoever's causing that stress hit the road, Jack. Don't answer the call. Block the phone. All right? Now notice that says, uh, this is the stress management kit. You put that on the piece of durable paper stick it to a hard surface and bang your head here because that's probably not one of your most effective ways but you'll see people do this (coughs) how many of you work in an environment where not everyone gets along perfectly elephants in the room boo-booing and everyone can smell it not saying a word I'm just not going to deal with her you know not going to deal with him and so stress avoidance while is while it is a strategy it's probably not, our, not our, our best one, but trying to avoid stressors. And, and the thing is, if what you said in the word, in that devotional fair, is true, you just said that this is going to come, right? It's a part of it. So what are the odds that you really can avoid these stressors? You maybe avoid some, but some of it is like termites, you ever avoided them, right? I always say that, um, you know, if you deal with an issue when it's small, then you can probably manage it a little better. But if it grows, you know, instead of pulling a weed, you're chopping a tree. You know, instead of, you know, killing a lizard, you're slaying a dragon. And that's the issue with avoiding stressors. It doesn't necessarily – they didn't go anywhere. You're just closing your eyes and pretending they're not there. Now, removing the stressors, that's a little bit different, right? So removing the stressors are – it's a little bit different than avoiding them. Avoiding them means they're there and you are pretending they're not there or you walk away. When you're removing a stressor, if it's someone you, that works for you, might be letting them go. Or if it's you work for someone, it might be quitting. right? And then you're no longer in that environment anymore. I've heard people say that they're going to pick up and move to a new town. right, Just to get away from I need a fresh start they don't really think that they're going to show up where they are and probably all the stuff that was with them. Have you ever heard someone say, I don't know what it is, but I keep dating these guys who are, you know, rude, or I keep dating these women who just take advantage of me for my money, you know. I don't know what it is, you know. What's the common thread there? There's something that's that's drawing that, right? So removing the stressor is kind of temporary as well because frankly, probably going to show up again. So those are ineffective strategies. Yeah, she doesn't look like she's doing too well. <laughs> and unfortunately it, it exacerbates and it takes a toll on you physically. Have you ever heard of cortisol levels? Anyone ever heard of that? Cortisol levels is a stress hormone. That's why I like to do things holistically. A stress hormone that creates inflammation. Anything that ends in itis. Arthritis, bursitis. Inflammation in the body creates medical concerns, right? Pain. Causes pain management. That's a slippery slope in itself. What happens when you have pain issues? What are you likely to be prescribed? Maybe opiates? The opiates are doing what? They're gonna address the pain. Well, as we were talking about at dinner, the pain doesn't go away. The signal to the brain that tells you it's hurting goes away. And then that's when you find the substances you're using are muting the pain signals so that you don't feel anything or you finally feel something. And that's the danger of it all. So those are not the most effective strategies. They really aren't. But yet, that's what you'll find people do. What are other ineffective strategies? Do you know what neurotransmitter in the brain that cocaine hits? dopamine. That's a pleasure center, right? Dopamine. Same place when you're doing any fun activity, right? Including doing adult things. It's dopamine. Guess what else hits dopamine? Sugar. Sugar hits dopamine. So stress eating, that's why you'll find that you know, when, what is it, the picture of the, the person who got broken up with and they're sitting in front of the refrigerator and they're <laughs> shoveling the ice cream? Yeah, and I think I mentioned this at the last talk that I did, and this is earmuffs to the women, but for for men, if you're trying to, you've made your, your spouse mad or your significant other mad, and uh, you say, hey hon, let's go for a walk, you know, first of all, and talk, no one's going to believe you want to talk, but you know that in itself is going <coughs> to, you go for a walk, that increases the endorphins, the heart rate gets up, slider or Hershey kiss, and you're in there because that sugar will hit dopamine. <laughs> But stress eating as a general, um, is an ineffective strategy. And then here's where we are with self-medication. This stuff works. It makes things better temporarily. And then once you're hooked on it, nothing else matters except for that instant relief. So imagine, it's just like when you've had an incredibly um, painful cramp, or you had an incredibly painful, um, you know, like you've gotta use the bathroom really, really badly because you ate something, and you got the bubble guts you'll do anything in that moment for relief, right? It doesn't matter if you're driving down the interstate and you are two miles away from an appointment that's five minutes away. You're gonna stop in that moment and relieve yourself, right? That's exactly what happens when someone hits addiction. <coughs> Nothing else matters. You know, when we talk with our clients, you know, we always say, what's, what's, what was your first age of use? might wanna guess what the ballpark age that we hear is? Yeah, it'd be 12 to 15. It's a lot of vodka and water bottles in middle school and high school. It's surprising. It's surprising. And most of that comes from um, access to alcohol in the home. Procrastination and avoidance. If you just close your eyes and look the other way, it'll go away. Right? I had someone tell me, I had a client tell me that. Um, I was going through this really financial demise. These letters were coming in for bankruptcy and I just couldn't handle it. So I put all the letters in my drawer and closed it. (laughs) Problem solved. Problem solved, yeah. Yeah, so that, that, and generally, when you don't know what to do, sometimes you'll do nothing. But again, these are ineffective strategies. So you'll see this being done. You may have even done that. And there's nothing wrong with slowing things down. As a matter of fact, we always recommend slowing things down. However, doing nothing, again, that's when the problems tend to increase. Aggression, because you know, if you just yell at someone long enough, they're gonna stop it. Or not. But why do we do these things? You know, out of desperation, you'll try anything, right? But in addition to it being ineffective, it's also going to increase your stress level. And it's just like when you're looking for that missing soccer shirt and you open that middle drawer. How many times do you open the middle drawer to realize it's not in there? Like four more times? We will keep doing it and doing it and doing it thinking this time it just might work. Which is really ineffective because we've already tried these methods before and we're just going to try it again. So. If those are the ways that you're working on your stress, it's probably why you still have it. So let's do some of the obvious things, but this is what's most hard. If you focus on you, isn't that being terribly selfish against the person who needs you? Is it? No. It really isn't? So you're giving me the right answer, but is that what you do? Okay, I was just checking. So we know what to do, but we're not doing what we know to do. Explain that. Do you know how many families deal with the tragedy of shelling out money to the point where it impacts their future retirement? It impacts their, their um, investments. It impacts their bills. And then they'll have that loved one look at them and say, you've never done anything for me. You've never been there for me. That's not what your bank account says. That's not what the car you paid when they wrecked theirs was. So, so if what you're doing isn't effective, but you don't want to have the appearance of not doing anything for them, but yet when you do for them, you have the appearance of not doing anything for them, then we're, as, as the young people say, make that make sense. Make it make sense so here's here's the issue and and let me be let me be clear I should be sitting right there I am the I'm the the only reason why I'm not considered a hypocrite is because I do this disclaimer I'm not there because when I look at my 30 year old I see the six-year-old little boy that used to grab my leg when he was afraid you know I saw it the other day when I told you um he, he lost his cat and Mom, tell her we're gonna find the cat. He went from 30 to 6. We're gonna find the cat. (laughs) So I get it. I get it. But do you do you know you need to just just go? You can bond them out. You can pay their rent one more month because you just don't, they can't be homeless. I know one thing, my child will not be homeless no matter what they're going through, right? You can pay one more rent for them. You can, you can bond them out, you can buy another car, you can go on vacation. How many of you are gonna really go on vacation? Mm-hmm. But how much good are you doing for them if you're not okay? And that's what happens. You'll give and give and give and give until the point where you have nothing else to give and then they move on and then you're bitter and resentful and then the relationship is still flawed. We're gonna talk about how to repair those relationships, but you know, move or change your environment, that's a little bit different than when I said just pick up and go to a new place. But, you know, what's going to be important is if you really want the person that you're loving, you know, if it's your adult, young adult child, if it's your teenager, if you want that relationship to work, sometimes you have to create a little bit of space Because you can't see things very clearly. If I put my hand in your face and said, how many lines are going across my palm? You know, it smells like shrimp too. I thought I got that off. (laughs) You know, you can't see it, but if I ask you to take a step back, you're so close to the situation, it's a little hard to see it clearly. But what's hurtful about it is those who are not quite as close to the situation as you, who can see it clearly, they're gonna say things that might sound a little insensitive, or Offensive. Well, you don't, you don't know my son. You know he's just going through us, and next thing you know, you're defending things when you actually agree with them, and that's just something we do as people. There was a, um, there was an ad that Special K did. Do you know the cereal? It's Kellogg's, but they had a brand that was for they were selling it for like weight loss or something, and so they partnered with some jean company I don't remember which one but they were in this boutique store and they stacked up all the jeans by size but instead of putting sizes they put descriptions and the descriptions were um, they weren't they were not nice they were really mean it was like um, too skinny um, like fat pig I mean they were bad and so people came in the store and, and were offended and they're like, what is this? And there was an uproar, and it was a ladies boutique, and all these ladies were like fussing at the manager. And then, of course, it was a TV thing, and the ad came out. And what they were saying is, but this is how you talk to yourself. This is what you say to you. And so what's interesting is when you're looking at your loved one, and you're like, well, you're, you're breaking my heart, you're destroying this family, you know, you know, please stop. Um, but then when someone else says, hey, He's destroying the family. I don't talk about my son that way. You know, it's very hard to take feedback because you also have a love. Well, how do you work on you when you've got a love for this person? Moving or changing your environment is, mean, is just take a step back, look at what you're, what you're dealing with, and do something different. One of the hardest things for parents to do is for allowing their children to experience the consequences of the decisions they make, especially when you know you can help them avoid it. All you have to do is make a phone call. All you have to do is get in the car and show up, right? But you don't, and what does that look like? You're a bad parent? They'll be mad at you? Mm -hmm. You're darn right they'll be mad at you. They'll be mad at you until they get a chance for you to step back for them to be able to see themselves, right? Um, And then, you know, maybe none of this stuff is an an option. Maybe the stressor is so out of control it's impacted your health. I will never forget the dad that I met. Um, We have a couple of addiction programs. One has women and children in it. And there was a dad who dropped his daughter off and he swore he'd never see her again. He was morbidly obese. Um, His calves were like pumpkins and he had veins were in him and he he was breathing very, very heavily. Um, and he basically uh, was one stroke away from dying, and the doctor said, You've got to minimize the stress in your life. And the stressor was his little girl. She, and, and, and she was a daddy's girl. There's nothing he wouldn't do for her. Rehab after rehab after rehab, and he was, they were both dying. Right? And he would have died for her, but he got to the point where he couldn't really walk and breathe, and he didn't want to die, and he couldn't control her. So he dropped her off at treatment and said, that was it. And then she called, Daddy, can you just come to this one meeting? You know, is that Mar? Because they won't let me do this, that, and the other if we don't have family come. And so he he didn't answer the call, but he got her voicemail, heard her sweet voice. You know, you can be mad at your child until you hear their sweet voice. And um, he called and he said, I'll... I don't know why I'm going to think about doing this, but I'm thinking about coming to the meeting. Do I have to see her? And we said, no, this, you won't be able to see your loved one. This is just for parents to get information or loved ones get information. So he came because he knew he wouldn't see her. He sat in the very back. He signed the document to say he was in attendance for her, and he was planning on leaving until I got to the boundaries talk. And we're going to go over boundaries just a little bit. And that's when he realized he could still have a relationship with her and live. He just didn't know how to do it, because it was very toxic. He didn't know how to care for himself. That's why his health had deteriorated so greatly. So those work, but they're very temporary, right? They're not as ineffective as the other things we mentioned, but they don't last long. And you can't go on vacation every month. I mean, you probably could, but that wouldn't be effective, right? You can't can't keep doing that. So then what do we do, right? We're gonna see boundaries a couple of times. You gotta identify the cause of the stress. And sometimes it's the very person that you love the most. And that's a very hard thing to do, but the very best thing to do is look at a situation and assess what's really there. Because what happens is you'll start to be dishonest with yourself just as they're dishonest with their disease. And that's a very hard thing to do. The hardest place you'll ever look is in the mirror, you know. And so once you do that, how do you implement healthy boundaries? This is important. I'm going to go into it in a little bit more detail later. But you have to remember this. This entire first part of this talk is about you taking care of you. Boundaries are for you. That doesn't make any sense right? Because when you put a fence up, fence is a metaphorical boundary, it's to keep people out. Actually no, they're like fortresses. They're to keep you safe within. And so most people don't know how to do boundaries. Most people do limits. If you do this, you know, then you can't live here. That's not a boundary. Did you know that? That's not a boundary. I'm gonna put my foot down. That's not a boundary. Boundaries are for you and what boundaries say are, embrace yourself, put on your seatbelt and your helmet, that's what we say at home when we have news that's, that's gonna hit a little hard. When you do this, it doesn't matter what that other person does, it's how you choose to respond. So you take away the control of what they get to do and that's a very hard thing to do. However, when you start to do that, guess when people modify their behavior when it comes to you. I mentioned that I wasn't raised by my mother or my father. I still haven't met my father yet. My goal is to meet him before um, one of us dies, but I met my mother. got a chance to live with her a few months my senior year in high school. Um, I suspect she had a Pretty shady past when it came to drugs and alcohol. She doesn't talk about it. We're we're great friends now. I love it. She's crotchety as as all get-out though, and so she lives in a senior community, the kind where you're um you have to be able to care for yourself and all that. But she's a terror, and so she's um she's 76. She's very agile, and so she likes to go as she says to the market for her. For some of her um, neighbors. And so she gets the list and she does couponing and all that stuff. When she went coupon, she went for this one lady who's got a walker and the tennis balls on the bottom. And so I went to see her, and the lady with the tennis balls was going by, and she's like, "I want my money!" That's what my mother yelled across the parking lot at her. And the lady with the tennis balls was sh- <laughs> like, "She shuffled faster. You're walking faster, cousin me. You know, she's she's from Baltimore and she's just a handful. So she's that lady." And she explained that the lady's receipts were $2.01 over her amount. And when she asked her for the balance, the lady's like, oh, come on, Mary, it's just $2.00. And it's about the principal, you know. Um, And so she haunted this lady down until and then her son tried to give her the $2.00. I want her to give me the $2.01. You know, so she's that lady. But sometimes um, the neighbors will allow their grandkids to visit. And um, are are any of you old enough to remember Dennis the Menace? Mm -hmm. So then the neighbor who's next door to her has a Dennis the Menace kind of grandson. And he's just a terror. Well, I don't know his name. I'll call him Dennis. Dennis was um, terrorizing, terrorizing, went to my mother's house. How are you, Miss Mary? I'm doing well, Dennis. Would you care for a treat? Yes, ma'am. She went in the house, brought him a treat. Thank you. He went to the next house, terror. Now, granted, I wouldn't suggest implementing boundaries like my mother does, but she got a different behavior from him. Now, do you think the interaction they had to create that behavior was all warm and fuzzy? Probably not, right? But she was clear on what she would accept and what she wouldn't. But everyone else was like, come on, Dennis, put your hand down. And Dennis was a terror. So when we're implementing healthy boundaries, those are for you and those have to do with what you are willing to accept or not. And you have to communicate. But is that always an option? No, Well, come on, Kimberly, you're telling me everything that doesn't work, what the heck? But these are the things that we try. And these are the things that we do and these are the things that logically make sense. How, how much logic is in addiction? How much logic's in addiction, Joy? John, none? Little, none? No, there's no logic there. So why are you using logic in a situation where it doesn't exist? Doesn't it make sense that you would? Right? So we're dealing with a different animal. It's a beast. It's an absolute beast. So here's, here's the hard pill to swallow. Sometimes the stress levels are so grandiose that they Im- impact you to a level where you don't function well anymore. Now, let me share this with you. Next month you're going to hear a talk on some of the psychology, right? The strategies that why people self-medicate and some of the mental health that comes with it. Did you know that mental health disorders like depression, anxiety, bipolar, things like that, are as highly inheritable as height and eye color? Did you know that? They are. And so, just as if you have diabetes that runs in your family, what happens if you maintain a diet of incredible amounts of sugar and fatty foods? You're probably gonna have diabetes. If you have a diabetes diagnosis, it took 10 to 15 years in pre-diabetic mode to even get there. So it takes time, it takes time, but it'll get there if you just keep eating enough crap. Right, heart disease, it'll get there if you just keep doing it. Mental health, the amount of stressors and trauma you experience, can trigger a disease state like depression or anxiety that you may be predisposed to genetically in your family. So managing stressors is more than just self-care. It literally could be the very thing that prevents you from being clinically (coughs) depressed. But if you've had these stressors on you for such a long period of time, it's not different than the diabetes diagnosis. Now you have to manage that disease state. I was on a talk on last Sunday about this, and that was the hardest part of this. I said some of you have put such a strain on your relationships that people don't even want to talk to you anymore. They hit the button when you call. Well, why is that? Because you're not you. And this isn't a Snickers commercial where they say you're not you when you're angry. (laughs) You're not you. And sometimes it takes professional help, and that's okay. Culturally, some cultures will discourage that. I've been in tons of churches where the sermon will go and you're like amen amen like some of you go and see a therapist and you need to see the Lord I'm like really <laughs> so I'm like hey you know sometimes the lord will send you to a therapist here's my card you know <laughs> I don't do that I don't do that but I'm just saying so sometimes people will say it's a lack of faith or you know but it's not. You just need, just like you need to go to a doctor for other disease states. This is no different. But if you don't manage this stress, it can go. It can kick you into that. Depending on, and you don't even have to be predisposed to depression in your family to, to be clinically depressed. Sometimes some of the situations you deal with will create that um, environment. Grief, loss. I'm dealing. I have a private practice client who um, she delivered a stillbirth, and then they miscarried and now they have a newborn and can't figure out why their marriage is struggling. And he's a pastor, they, they, they're, they're boggled. Can you, can you guess why they might be struggling? That's a lot of grief and loss, right? Thankfully, they're getting help, but sometimes it takes that. And I put attorney, clergy, because it depends on whatever that issue is. If it's, if it's the stuff I mentioned with depression, anxiety, and it's clinical, then obviously, it's going to a therapist or a doctor. But if the legal issues are pounding up or You know, sometimes just go get someone to support you in it. This environment is perfect for that to find the support because this is one of the loneliest disease states in the world. It's lonely for the addict and it's lonelier for the family because the person that you once loved is gone. It looks like them, sorta, but it's not them and you just want them back. So you're grieving that loss too, right? But yeah, you get professional help, that'll help. That's my way of plugging my kids. Some of those pictures are kind of old, but... um, So I don't want to minimize the strategies that are temporary because sometimes you just need to do what you need to do in that moment, right? The ineffective strategies, I am gonna discourage those, but sometimes you just need a minute. Do not respond when you're heightened. Have you ever gone to the grocery store when you're hungry? Mm-hmm. Is that is clear proof that we shouldn't make decisions in our emotion, right? Mm-hmm. This is at a whole new level. This is that on steroids. So, in that moment when you just want to scream because isn't that how we started the devotion today, right? Go outside. Literally, nature is created as a place for us to reset the trees are standing there saying can I catch your carbon dioxide I've got mm-hmm. some oxygen for you mm-hmm. you know um, and I mentioned the walk when I was saying earmuffs to the women but there's something about the heart rate generated. Have you ever been to a gym and it's co-ed and then it's like people are always talking and hey like are you working out or are you dating? Right. It feels like a meat market right? Do you know why that happens? Because when you start to do physical activity your heart rate Accelerates. You know what happens when you're in love and you get excited? Your heart rate accelerates. So those same physiological changes are happening in that moment. That's why getting out outside, vitamin D, the trees, nature, um, your heart rate's up. Those are acute, but they can help. You know, phoning a friend. I went to the service for a friend of mine who died from COVID. He was a physician and uh, he was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? He did terrible, and he was embarrassed because he's a doctor, but, um, but um, you know, he's a lifeline, so I, I put that in there in, in memory of him. But, um, you know, sometimes they're that person that you can talk to, and you're not even talking about what you're dealing with. That just makes things better. But I wonder how often are you the person that people are calling to talk to? No, I really wonder. Are you? Give me a little tiny nod if you tend to be that one. Because guess what that also does? That might add to your stress, too. Sometimes it makes you feel good because you know people can call you. But goodness, how much more can you put on you? God's not going to let you take more than you can bear, but you will. Right? So how do you balance that? You want to be a good friend. And what you've done is you've just piled more stress onto you. Um, Drop and give me ten. Or not. But yeah, the exercise piece. Doing something healthy for you. John told me today he's back to his college weight, 40 some years ago. Or I mean 20 some years ago, sorry. I'll
2: take that.
1: But when you do something for yourself physically, like I I intentionally put that I'm a personal trainer in my bio because when I counsel outside clients, they get a workout plan, right? They love coming to the gym to see their counselor, right? But I also take personal training clients And we do counseling because if you don't understand what's driving your behaviors, then you're going to continue to do those behaviors. And you can't just work on one piece of you and think that that's going to make it better. Um, Look at pictures that are important to you. Those are my three offspring. So that's George when he graduated from the Naval Academy. Kimberly Brooke. um, Now, I'm, I'm on marriage number two. Um, my husband doesn't like when I call him my second husband because it implies there's going to be a third but uh, <laughs> but um, my, my ex-husband my first husband's name was George and I'm Kimberly the kid on the left is George and the kid in the middle is Kimberly I don't know what we were thinking but we had a house full of George's and Kimberly and that's my little tear at the end that's Emily um, she's named after a war hero named Emily Perez so if you ever want to Google her I'd be honored but sometimes just looking at pictures of people who are important to you reflecting on when you went to the beach, just good times. If that's an acute way to manage your stress, and that's okay, especially if you're in an environment where you can't really go to the bathroom and cry. (laughs) Because it's really interesting. You can be in an environment where you get that phone call and it rattles you, or whatever happened before you left earlier in the day, and you still have to function, right? You still have to function, people are counting on you. And you can't just check out. Um, there's all kinds of five-minute solutions. This, this, these feet in the grass—that's earthing. I mentioned going outside because of um, the trees and the vitamin D, and it literally, that's why beaches are so wonderful with your feet in the sand. There's a therapeutic technique called earthing, and there's something about grounding yourself, literally and figuratively, um, and doing that. Take a shower. You know, I used to love to run in the rain. No one knew I was crying. You know, plus I just like running in the rain. Um, Reading, there's adult coloring books now. Just doing something for you. These are basic coping skills that don't contribute to other issues later. There's so many different things, but remember when I gave you the the example of the Special K project where people were offended? Check how you talk to yourself. Because do you know what else comes with the lies and the deceit of addiction? Not just the lies and the deceit that the person struggling with addiction says to you. You'll start lying to yourself. And guilt will set in because it's your fault. Something you did do or something you didn't do. And next thing you know, you're blaming yourself for where you all are. That's a lie from the pits of hell. And it needs to go back there. And sometimes we don't even know we're doing negative self-talk but check yourself what do you say what do you say about you where did i go wrong what that time i yelled at i should have let him go that time you know when i didn't bond him out you know and and you can't do that i mean you can do that but you shouldn't um doing something productive i know this is particularly helpful with men who are dealing with depression and anger and they don't work You've got to do something productive, no matter what it is, and, the, and taking pride in that. But if you're sitting and you're watching TV or you're on your phone and you're just, that'll take you down to nowhere. You know, the death rate once people retire is significantly increased. You stop living, you start dying. And then, of course, um, listen to feel-good music. Let's see if we have any feel-good music. Uh Uh-oh, how do you stop this thing? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mentioned music permeates everything. I actually um, am going to close out today with a song that I want you to hear. And um, I haven't decided which song. I have three. So God hasn't told me which song it is yet. But I want us to just do that as an exercise because sometimes you can get so overwhelming you can't go anywhere. But we always kind of have our phone with us and it's something you can do just to kind of center yourself. But here we go, here's the hard part. How do you deal with the conflict? There's a conflict there? Yeah, the argument, I mean, you're trying to communicate passionately and it's coming across aggressively or they're coming across aggressively to you and all you wanna do is help and love, you know? And so how can someone you love so much cause so much hurt and harm, you know? It's because you care. I tell people all the time, if, if someone can, how do I word this? If someone's close enough to you to hug you, they're close enough to slap the H-E double halka sticks out of you because you allowed yourself to be vulnerable to them. Right? And when they're little and you pick up a kid, you know they'll stick their fingers in your nose and your mouth right and you just pull them out you know because you allow them in your space once they get older now they're questioning your love for them they're questioning your commitment because you're not saying yes to what you know will probably help keep them on this path and that's why it hurts so bad because you do love and this is where you have to be careful and I use this analogy a lot I know you two have already heard this it's just as if you broke a glass in your kitchen. You're not going to clean it up with your hands, right? But when you're, you're dealing with a broken person, and it's just like holding glass. So even being close to them, you're going to get cut a little bit. But that's why the boundaries are going to help. And of course, if you're in the kitchen three months later with your feet barefoot, you'll hit that glass again. But we need to learn how to deal with the language and the distance and what the relationship deal breakers are. I do this when I do marriage therapy, but I also try and get people to do this with friendships and all relationships. Imagine a quadrant. If I had you have a piece of paper and you put it in four pieces, and the upper left quadrant and the bottom right are deal breakers for a relationship. If these things are either a part of the relationship or missing, it's a deal breaker for you. So for example, you may say, if this is someone I'm going to spend the rest of my life with or whatever, they need to already have a relationship with the Lord. Like, let's say that's a deal-breaker, right? And then on the bottom right, something you will not tolerate within a relationship. Let's say it's abuse. Like, you punch me in the nose, this relationship's over. Deal-breaker. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Then the other quadrant, so the upper right and the lower left, are things you'd prefer to have and things you would prefer not to have. So. Like for me, because I'm giving you my deal breakers, um, prefer to have, I prefer if we're having, um, let's say you and I are having a disagreement, I would prefer we be able to talk, talk it through, right? Some people just shut down. You ever seen that? Like you wanna talk about the shutdown. So I would prefer that, but it's not a deal breaker. And then the bottom uh, left, things I would prefer not to have. Like I would prefer you to not you know, be messy but it's not a deal breaker, does that make sense? When I had people do that, and I say, what are your deal breakers, what are your prefers? My next question, and I say, don't just use it for like a significant other or a spouse, use it for all relationships. What I find is, I'll ask, have any of these deal breakers ever happened in your relationship? And you know what, the answer is yes. And the relationship didn't end. That's not a deal-breaker, is it? It needs to slide over to prefer to have. And when you see it in writing, you know, if it's infidelity, if it's abuse, and it's sitting there, well, it was a deal-breaker, but now it's what I prefer not to have. Those are relationships that now you're compromising your own character, values, and beliefs. And that is what's going to eat away at you. And not only does that eat away at you to the point where you can't help the very person you want to help, who's in addiction, you become no good anywhere else. Or maybe not no good, but you're certainly not not working at your highest level of effectiveness at work, with other relationships, and people notice. You may have noticed someone's going through that. So how do we deal with that? This is tough. We're getting near the end. So creating and maintaining healthy boundaries. I mentioned that earlier, and I said we were gonna come back to it. Well, we're here. Remember the dad that I said he dropped his daughter off? And he thought in order to live, he had to sever that relationship. He came up to me at the end of that workshop, and he was crying like this. He goes, you almost make it sound like I can be in my little girl's life again. And I was crying with him. I'm like, yeah, you can. And it was unfathomable. However, this is the hard part. So to me, all of it is hard. It's hard to watch them in addiction, right? It's hard to watch them go through the consequences that you can't protect them from. So to me, this is no different than, you know, and this is not fair to say, but I'm gonna say it anyway. No different than having a five-year-old who's running in the middle of the street when you grab them. Do you care if you scared them? No do you care if you bruised them a little, you know, if they scratched their hand when you pulled them? Because the consequences were severe enough, right? So it's kind of like that. When you create a healthy boundary for you, here's what that looks like. What it says is, whatever, if you do this, and I'll give you an example. If you... um If you yell and scream at me, I'm going to hang up the phone. What I would prefer is that that we can talk about things. But if if you keep yelling at me, I'm just going to hang up the phone, does that make sense? But then they yell and scream at you, guess what you have to do? You have to hang up the phone because when you don't, then they know that what you're saying is not true. They cannot trust you or what you say. And you just become another person that's trying to prevent them from relieving themselves from that intensity that I gave you as a description of having to use the bathroom and you're two miles away. That intensity, you're the person that's trying to prevent them from that. And that's very hard to do. However, guess how people respond when you set boundaries? Like Dennis the Menace. They don't like it. They'll call you all kinds of names. But they come back around because that's what love looks like. Does God love you enough to let you have consequences? Does He remove all that stuff from you? Then, I mean, do we get angry with God sometimes? You stop loving Him? You go back to Him? I mean, it really is a model for us to follow. So that's how you can stay connected and protected. And then the boundaries are permeable, they change over time. They change over time. At first, you know, would you let your son in active addiction use your car? When he says, I'll be right back. <laughs> Who's heard that lie? And then the next day you're still trying to figure out where he and your car are, right? So maybe that's a no. No, you can't use my car. Where are you trying to go? I'm just running to the store. I'll be back. I'm just running to Kroger. I'll be back in 20 minutes. You know, maybe that boundary is, come on, I'll take you to Kroger. Probably weren't going to Kroger. Right? But then, if they are in active, you know, treatment, if they are in recovery, then you can extend it a little bit. Mom, you take me to Kroger? What? How long is it going to take you? 20 minutes? And they actually come back. So you begin to then open it back up. But at first you have to close it. You have to stay connected and protected. But what happens is you're doing everything to stay connected and you're exposing yourself or you're doing what the dad did, where you're just completely protecting yourself and there's no connection with your loved one at all. Neither one of those are where you wanna be. Does that make sense? So what does healthy love look like? You know, The enabling, rescuing, and controlling, and I'm just gonna say that really quickly. This is when you are going to do something for them that they can do for themselves. Some of you will do something for them they didn't even ask you. They didn't even ask you, how are they going to create their own ability to function if you're going to come in and rescue them? All you're telling them by doing it is that they don't have the ability to do it for themselves. But they will take pride in being able to take care of themselves if you just allow them to. And allowing them to hit some of their consequences. So relationship repair, this is where we'll end, I think there's one more slide after that. The Twin Towers, everyone remember that, 9-11? Too you know many years it took to build those twin towers? Too you know many minutes it took for them to fall? That's how relationships are. And that bothers me. This is where I struggle in life. Because it shouldn't, I mean, 20, 25 year friendships, you ever see them fall out over something so small? Over this. Over things like this, where you're just trying to help someone <laughs> to recognize what the disease of addiction is. You, it might be in their family and they shut you out but your relationship with your loved one, sometimes it will fall like the Twin Towers. But how do you repair that? And you can, you can, but it takes time, right? Um, When is it irreparable? That's a tough one because all of this doesn't end with roses and glitter and unicorns. And there are some people that will walk away from you but maybe that's just for a season. That's the beauty of our way of doing this, has God in it. And He's all about redemption, and He's all about restoration, and He's all about trust in Him. Because sometimes that prodigal season is the very thing they needed to experience to come back home. I mean, I love the name of your ministry. It wasn't until you sleep with the pigs that you recognize what you had. And you can't say that. Some people just have to experience it for themselves. So what's the criteria for relationship repair? There's much, but the biggest one is time. And that's the hardest one because we just want it to get fixed right away and we don't want them to die in the midst of it. But there's already been a death. There's been a death in the relationship. There's been a death in, in you, a part of you probably died, right? So it does take time. It takes faith. It takes patience. It takes a support system for you. Right? And it takes you taking care of you. And it's amazing. God has this weird thing where if you focus on your lane, he can work on the lane of the other ones, especially if you're petitioning them on their behalf. And that's not easy. But the more you have support, the better it gets. So, um, when you can create a space for open dialogue without judgment you'll get an opportunity to start reestablishing trust because that's probably right after time the biggest thing that it's going to take because you don't trust them and they don't trust you and there's reason for it and it takes time to build the trust as well but if they feel like they can't talk to you then that's just going to create more space for deception but you can put boundaries on the way they talk to you. All of this takes practice, and it's just like training wheels. It doesn't go easy when you first try it, um, but get comfortable having crucial conversations because once you do that, you know, out of the manures where gr- great stuff grows, <laughs> smells like crap, but it works. That's all I got. What questions do you have? You can think about your questions. Anybody wanna know why I have this Rubik's Cube? I know you too know, but. So um, for my children, um, they are, or as my youngest says, you have to learn to solve the Rubik's Cube to be my child. That's not exactly how it works. Mm-hmm. But um, I teach my children how to play chess and how to solve the Rubik's Cube. Because I really believe, um, especially with the God that we serve, that literally the Rubik's Cube and chess are the keys to life. So if you're familiar with chess, chess teaches you how to think critically beyond the decision you make, because a lot of times we'll make decisions in the moment, but we don't think, what's the consequences of those decisions? Or what, how might someone respond? That's really what chess is. If I say this or do this, how are they gonna respond to me? And there's all these different things you think through. So when they respond, you kind of thought about it, you know, and you can kind of anticipate. So it's teaching you how to think more than just in the moment. But the Rubik's Cube, And um, I'm like, can you mess that up a little bit and then hand it to him and mess it up a little bit? There are people that fall into two camps generally, and you can figure out which camp you fall in. One is your life started out kind of hard. Maybe there was abuse and trauma. Uh, maybe there was exposure to alcohol. What was interesting about the couple I mentioned that had the stillbirth and the, and the miscarriage, and I said hey, her husband's a pastor, he was raised by an alcoholic mom, and he functions well in chaos. She was not. So their house is chaotic, and she's not functioning well, and he's thriving, because that's all he's ever known. So, yep, yeah, yeah I'm let them twist on it, too. Make sure it doesn't look yeah, like really I, I'm up. a plant. It's really messed up right. And so for some people, they just kind of started out with trauma and hurt and abuse in their lives. Through no fault of their own, they were children and exposed to it, right? Um, The story that I was told is my mother, she had sent my brother to an orphanage. I met him a couple years ago. That was kind of cool. He was there all 18 years. Didn't even know his first name until he got his birth certificate when he left to go in the Navy. Um, my sister got adopted out, my brother, he didn't do so well, he's, he's sober now, but that, lots of relapses there, been in jail a lot. So she wasn't expecting to be pregnant with me, she was overweight, and was at the club and passed out. And they took her to the ambulance, took her to the hospital, and she delivered me. Mm-hmm. That's shocking. Didn't know what to do, dropped me off at a friend's house, said she'd be back, and she didn't come back. Um, so, for some, things started out a little rocky, right? But for others, parents intact or loving grandparents, opportunities, school, you know, um, finances were in order. Is this all messed up? But regardless of if it started out traumatic or if it started out where it just started drinking and using a little for recreation, the next thing you know, it got bit by the addiction bug, life got screwed up. And to me, that's what the Rubik's Cube. Um, it, it means that to me. So, as we sit here and navigate it, the Rubik's Cube actually, its it, if you ever want to learn how to solve it, there's a center color, because you always got to know your center. Right? That's the color for that side, but if you don't know even that little bit of information, you don't know, you just, you wouldn't know, and, and you wouldn't you would go in a a different direction than what you need to do to solve it. But the first layer of solving the Rubik's Cube, and there are some that would say there's a method for it. My son solves this thing in 23 seconds so he's our champ for the family. But you basically have to do it intuitively. You have to figure it out. There's some stuff in life you just have to figure out. Right? And some people will tell you some stuff, but some stuff it's trial and error. And literally, I don't know if you can see, but like one layer is solved but there's so much that's still screwed up. And at that point, what's interesting is there's just certain steps. And if you do the same steps, it works. It's just like if you wanna lose weight, if you eat less, work out more, it's a series of steps and it's mind boggling how the same steps fix it every single time, no matter who screws it up, right? So now I have two layers. In order to solve the third layer, and by the way, I think this is how most of us walk around in life, if we're doing well. To solve the third layer, you have to throw everything upside down. And I want you to watch this. This is all the steps I have to do and not mess up the bottom two. And not mess up. And I don't know how many times it's going to make me do it. I don't know how many treatments, I don't know how many relapses. And then at some point it starts to come together, do you see that? Mm -hmm. This is usually how we have them when they're leaving treatment. And even then, look at this, do you see how many mess ups can happen in that? But then it starts to come together, right? So the thing about the Rubik's Cube I teach my children is no matter who screwed it up, the same steps fix it. The same steps fix it. And it's a lot of what we talked about today. So that's why I carry Rubik's Cube. Plus it helps me focus. So I wanna leave the last few minutes for you to ask questions. If there's anything that you want clarity on, um, if there's anything that you heard today that you resonated with you, please share. Yes, ma'am.
2: I have a question about um, thinking boundaries when you're it, for me, it's, it's not clear when you're dealing with a, your child that's a, a young adult, like a teen. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like you can't really say, okay, I'm going to go take care of myself. Like, it's still a child. You still have a, a, an adolescent, a child that, in some respects, you still have to feed. You have to care for your child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're dealing with addiction and a teen... That's very hazy to me. It's like, okay, there you know, it it doesn't it's not minimalized because they're an a child. So mm-hmm. they still take you through all of the difficulties that you'll face and in but there's still that sort of responsibility I think as a parent that mm-hmm. you still have to it's not like you can say, Look, I'm this is a boundary, like I'm not gonna deal with What's going on with you know with you today? Because this is causing me an enormous amount of like I don't feel like you can do that with a and with a teen or an adolescent because you're the parent. So you you need to you know be involved with your child to an extent to make sure like for example they're fed or you know like that sort of thing. So right. that's where I think it's kind of kind of those boundaries are kind of hazy because it's not always clear to me what those look like with when you're caring for a child that's still, you're it, you're the parent, so you have a responsibility
1: right. um, to care for them. Great question. And it does depend on where they fit in the age spectrum as far as if they're adolescent, because adolescence goes up to 22, 23. So if we're talking about someone who's a teen and they're 19, that's different than if they're a teen and they're 16 because they're a minor and there's legal things that you're still responsible for as a minor. So if we're talking about minors, are we talking about minors? Yeah,
2: we're talking about like
1: 15. Right, yeah. so, so actually boundaries there don't, with, don't have you withdraw the care that you're obligated to provide. It becomes a defects issue if you don't feed them. Right. <laughs> or if you say, right. you can't stay here. You know, that, that's not what we're talking about. However, they are at an age where they're able to have Uh, responsibilities and consequences for their actions. This is the tough part. It's just like if they have a school project, right? And you know this project is going to take this much of their grade and you're trying to make sure they don't fail. You know what I mean? Unfortunately you can hold a boundary there in terms of saying you can't be the one to do the project for them. When it comes to addiction specifically you can hold boundaries in terms of what you allow in your home and so that may mean some of their privacy is removed so for example you you know um we don't allow these things in our home if you bring them in the home they're going to be thrown away and you know like for my son for example i didn't realize um we had a conversation about marijuana he made varsity football and baseball his freshman year so my husband and I are sitting at the table. My husband says, what are you going to do after the game when they pass you marijuana? And he was like, what, what do you mean? I, 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 and he just stuttered. And we just sat, we, 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 we sat there and we stared at him. And he, and he kind of fumbled. And he was like, well, I, I don't use that. And, and, and he got nervous, right? And so we talked about it. About two months later, he came in the house and was like, guess who was offered marijuana today? This guy. He goes, and I, it was like I already saw it. So I, you know, I, I said, no, I'm good. He goes, and they passed it beyond me. And there were other guys that didn't have it. We didn't have the alcohol conversation. So I get a phone call. Mom, I hit somebody in the high school parking lot. I don't know whose car it is. No one's out here. Write a note, put your number on it. We'll call. The person called. We went back. I met him out there. Police were fine, report, everything was fine. He hugged me, and guess what I smelled? broke my heart I had no idea he hit them drunk I looked up all the consequences for a DUI and that's what he had his his car was in our driveway for six months and he walked angrily wouldn't catch the bus to school when he had a car you know what I mean so there was boundaries that we set that still allow them to experience I took his driver's license I mean I literally followed (laughs) I mean you know so it, it's, it's a way that you still show them love. You don't withhold what they need, but you still implement the boundary because it's what you will not accept. And if they do that, this is how you respond, and you're consistent with it. Does that help a little? It is not easy. And I hope I'm not saying it like, oh, here's the answer. Yeah, it,
2: no, but that, that logic makes sense because, yeah, that, that
1: helps. They need structure and boundaries. They need it. And the more looseness there is to what you say and what you do, is, is a, it's a sliding board into um, deeper throes of it. It's also helpful to see if they can talk to you about what's going on that's causing it. If it's a friend that's, you know, or if they're dealing with their own issues. Not a lot of kids have anxiety, and that's how they cope with it, you know. Great question, though. Anyone else? Are you awake? Helpful? Yeah? All right. Well, I'm going to hang out a little bit afterward if anyone wants to chat with me. But thank you so much for giving me the space to share with you today.